DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, presents A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. Father Gallagher was ordained in 1979 as a member of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. He obtained his doctorate from the Gregorian University and has dedicated many years of extensive ministry to retreats, spiritual direction, and teaching on the spiritual life. Father Gallagher is the author of several books published by the Crossroads Publishing Company on the spiritual teaching of St. Ignatius of Loyola and the life of Venerable Bruno Lanteri, founder of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. Father Gallagher is featured on the EWTN series Living the Discerning Life, the spiritual teachings of St. Ignatius of Loyola. A Lord of the Rings spiritual retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Father Gallagher. Thanks again, Chris. Where should we start? Let's turn to that essay on fairy stories. That's the title. This was a lecture that he was asked to give and was later published. I propose to speak about fairy stories, though I am aware that this is a rash adventure, which immediately tells you that for Tolkien, fairy stories are not just cute little stories for children. They are, high, they are for children, but also for all, and they are a high form of literature. Fairy which he somewhat coins as a way of speaking about the place where such stories takes place. Fairy is a perilous land, and there are pitfalls for the unwary and dungeons for the overbold. I have been a lover of fairy stories since I learned to read, and have times thought about them and so on. I have been hardly more than a wandering explorer or trespasser in the land full of wonder, but not of information. The realm of fairy story is wide and deep and high and filled with many things. All manners of beasts and birds are found there, shoreless seas and stars uncounted, beauty that is an enchantment and an ever-present peril, both joy and sorrow as sharp as swords. I'll just comment as I read this. uh, There's something lovely about reading Tolkien out loud because his prose is so beautifully crafted. In that realm, a man may perhaps count himself fortunate to have wandered, but its very richness and strangeness tie the tongue of a traveler who would report them. And while he is there, it is dangerous for him to ask too many questions, lest the gates should be shut and the keys be lost. The best commentary on this introduction to this essay, I think, was the last story that Tolkien published in 1967, and it's entitled Smith of Wooten Major. I don't know how frequently it's even talked about, in discussions on Tolkien, but to my mind, it's one of the most piercingly beautiful things that he wrote. I'd almost say the most piercingly beautiful thing that he wrote, almost because there are texts like those we just read in The Lord of the Rings, which I think reach this level. When I first read this story, I just thrilled to it, and I've read it a number of times over the years. And one time I was in a bookstore and was absolutely delighted to see that uh, a Tolkien scholar named Berlin Flieger actually published a book on this story, which she entitles Smith of Wooten Major, and she went back into some of Tolkien's manuscripts and so on about the story. It's, as I say, piercingly and hauntingly beautiful, and it touches, as Tolkien says, you touch the land full of wonder but not of information. There's a richness and a strangeness that tie the tongue of the traveler and so on, but you see the beauty of it. When, uh, in those years my high school years, and it's never really stopped. 
I've shared with many the, the delight in this kind of writing, stories about fairy or stories of fantasy of this kind when they're well done. Books by George MacDonald, his lovely story, The Golden Key, and many of his novels of fantasy of this kind, uh, certainly Tolkien's writings, C.S. Lewis's writings of this kind, the Narnia tales and the Space Trilogy. Another story that uh, I've never heard mentioned too much, but which is um, just another beautiful story by Paul Gallico, The Man Who Was Magic. It's a short novel which I would classify with these kinds of writings. Why do they thrill us? And not every reader is drawn to these, but many are. And Tolkien is writing about that kind of writing and trying to say something about it. I think this is probably the best essay ever written on these kinds of stories. But I'm going to move toward the end of the essay. And Tolkien is now talking about the consolation that tales of this kind can bring. And this leads him back to his word of eucatastrophe. So he says, tragedy is the true form of drama and its highest function. So you can think of Shakespeare's tragedies, for example, which have sad endings, but which teach something important. But he says the opposite is true of fairy story. Since we do not appear to possess a word that expresses this opposite, I will call it eucatastrophe. The eucatastrophic tale is the true form of fairy tale and its highest function. And that he says, the consolation of these stories is the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn that we just talked about. Eucatastrophe, or the fact that the deepest truth of well-written stories of fantasy and the deepest truth of our world, redeemed by God, the fact that the deepest truth is eucatastrophe, that things will, will turn in a way that will lead to salvation and redemption and joy, does not deny the existence of discatastrophe. Dis, D-Y-S, is the Greek prefix which indicates something that's gone badly or ill. So the fact that eucatastrophe is the final word in a redeemed world does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. But this is the key point. It does deny, in the face of much evidence, and we can think of all we see around us in the world today, which is so troubling in so many ways and can seem to be growing and is growing in so many ways, it denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat. And insofar is evangelium, and there's the link, that's the Latin word for gospel. There's the explicit link to Christianity. And insofar is evangelium, something like what happens at Mount Doom, when in the face of apparent defeat and Frodo no longer has the strength to destroy the ring, suddenly there is the sudden happier joyous turn and the world is redeemed. Reading a story of that kind gives a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. And now in the epilogue to this story of uh, to this essay on fairy stories, the peculiar quality of, of the joy in successful fantasy can thus be explained as a sudden glimpse of the underlying reality or truth, which is why this story so thrills us. Because, however consciously or inarticulately, something in us is lifted up as we read a story like The Lord of the Rings, because it tells us that there is hope for our world that redemption and salvation are real and are the final word. In the catastrophe, we see a brief vision 
that the answer may be greater. It may be a far-off gleam or echo of Evangelium in the real world. I would venture to say that approaching the Christian story from this direction, it has long been my feeling, a joyous feeling, that God redeemed the corrupt-making creatures, men, fallen men, in a way fitting to this aspect as to others of their strange nature. The Gospels contain a fairy story, or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. Among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. But this story has entered history and the primary world, so that the Gospels are, in the sense that, that Tolkien understands stories of fantasy, are the fullest and most complete story of this kind ever written, with this enormous difference that this time the story is not subcreated, is not in the secondary world of literary creation, but it is in the world of creation, in the primary world. It is real. It is true. But this story has entered history and the primary world. The desire and aspiration of sub-creation, all well-done literature, has been raised to the fulfillment of creation. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. In the fallen world, with so much darkness and sin, and suddenly Christ is born, God is born into the world. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the Incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy. We'll return to A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John S. of Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. An easy way to help Discerning Hearts is to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our Instagram and Facebook pages are vibrant spaces where you can engage with daily inspirational quotes from the saints, streaming DH broadcast encounters, and updates about our latest offerings. On our YouTube channel, you'll find a treasure trove of video podcasts, interviews, guided meditations and prayers, and reflections from renowned spiritual leaders. These resources are carefully curated to provide guidance, wisdom, and insights that can help you discern life's challenges with a sense of purpose and peace. 
By subscribing, following, and engaging with Discerning Hearts on these platforms, you're not only enriching your own spiritual journey, but also helping to spread awareness of our mission. Every like, share, and comment helps us reach more people who are seeking meaningful growth and connection. So, please take a moment to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, and then share with a friend. Join the Discerning Hearts community and embark on a transformative spiritual journey alongside fellow seekers. Your engagement not only benefits you, but also contributes to the growth and impact of Discerning Hearts. We now return to A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. Sometimes I've had conversations with people who have read The Lord of the Rings and will describe how it awakens a deep longing. There's something joyful and something, it's like Tolkien says, that where where joy and sorrow mingle and become one, there's a kind of piercing joy and attraction which awakens a desire for something. I do have to say that I felt that very much myself in reading the the Lord of the Rings and have felt that over the years. And what Tolkien would say is we need to feel the thrill of fairy. We need to feel the thrill of fantasy, well-done, sub-created literature of this kind. And in that sub-created world, in the secondary world, experience the joy of eucatastrophe when suddenly hope and goodness um, are, are triumph. When the sudden joy is turned, when everything seems to be going badly. And what Tolkien says is that if we can, when we experience that kind of joy in stories of fantasy, then we're catching a glimpse of what is primary truth. More than a glimpse, we're catching a taste of the truth in the primary world. Once we experience that in a story of fantasy, then to know again with a thrill that the gospel, the most beautiful of all of these stories, is primarily true, changes everything. Tolkien writes this line in about the gospels in uh, this essay. Legend, here in the gospels, legend and history have met and fused. So that this is one literary way of understanding, or as I say, better yet, more uh, of tasting, because this is a stirring of the heart, tasting Christian joy. If we can taste the joy of eucatastrophe in a tale of fantasy, then we have a window into Christian joy, which is of the same quality, but of a much higher degree, because this time it is real. And Tolkien would would say that that is the function of stories of this kind, among other functions. One of its functions, the the final one he describes, is what he calls consolation, to awaken that, that deep sense of hope and joy in us as we read these stories. Now, I'd like to conclude everything that we've said by quoting from a letter that Tolkien wrote two years before his death. So he was 79 years old at this point, and a letter that he actually never sent. It's a draft, and it's a letter in response to a Miss Carol Batten Phelps, who had written him a letter about the Lord of the Rings, which deeply moved Tolkien. The reason that he never sent this letter was that his wife was critically ill at this point. In fact, she would die two months later. So this remained as a draft. He says, I'm very grateful for your remarks on the critics and so on, and your account of your personal delight in the Lord of the Rings. And he goes on to reflect on how far beyond what he could have ever imagined, 
the Lord of the Rings had really exploded into the, the literary scene and was being read by such an enormous amount of readers. Obviously, he was made happy by that, not by some of the more fringe elements of that, which became kind of cultic in some way and so on, mm -hmm. but was deeply moved by how the book had uh, reached and touched so many people more than he could, could have ever imagined. He describes how some of the qualities of The Lord of the Rings, the book perhaps could explain some of that, but he says that does not fully explain what has actually happened. Looking back on the wholly unexpected things that have followed its publication, beginning with the appearance of Volume 1, I feel as if an ever-darkening sky over our present world had been suddenly pierced, the clouds rolled back, and an almost forgotten sunlight had poured down again, as if indeed the horns of hope with a capital H had been heard again, as Pippin heard them suddenly at the absolute nadir of the fortunes of the West. Remember that when the um, city of Minas Tirith is being so overwhelmed by the power of the forces of Sauron, and the Lord of the Nazgul is just about to enter and take the city, and then you hear, well, you hear the cock crow as dawn is coming even beneath the darkness of Mordor, and then you hear the wild blowing of the horns of Rohan, so that when everything seemed at its most hopeless, suddenly hope is born again. And you know, I, I do have to say, as you read people's responses to the Lord of the Rings, you find that this is true for a lot of readers. I feel as if an ever-darkening sky over our present world had been suddenly pierced, the clouds rolled back, and an almost forgotten sunlight, a vision of truth and goodness, had poured down again, as if the horns of hope had been heard again. But then Tolkien says, but how and why? How did, how did this happen? How did all of, all of this happen around the Lord of the Rings? I think I can now guess what Gandalf would reply. So he's going to describe two incidents here. A few years ago, I was visited in Oxford by a man whose name I have forgotten, though I believe he was well known. He had been much struck by the curious way in which many old pictures seemed to him to have been designed to illustrate the Lord of the Rings long before its time. He brought one or two reproductions. I think he wanted at first simply to discover whether my imagination had fed on pictures as it clearly had been by certain kinds of literature and languages. When it became obvious that, unless I was a liar, I had never seen the pictures before and was not well acquainted with pictorial art, he fell silent. I became aware that he was looking fixedly at me. Suddenly he said, Of course, you don't suppose, do you, that you wrote all that book yourself? Which uh, Tolkien elsewhere uh, says, having reflecting either on this comment or something similar said to him in another setting, he was deeply moved by. Because what this man was saying was, you, you had grace, you had help. You could not have done this simply on your own. There's more at work here than just your human ability. Of course, you don't suppose, do you, that you wrote all that book yourself? Poor Gandalf. I was too well acquainted with Gandalf to expose myself rashly or to ask what he meant. I think I said, no, I don't suppose so any longer. I have never since been able to suppose so. An alarming conclusion for an old philologist to draw concerning his private, private amusement, which was how the whole saga of the Lord of the Rings first began, mm -hmm. but not one that should puff up anyone who considers the imperfections of chosen instruments, and indeed what sometimes seems their lamentable unfitness for the purpose. Which is a very humble reflection that 
if grace through me has composed this work, which has had such an impact more than I could have ever imagined, it has done so in spite of my imperfections. There's something very humble about that. And I suppose a reflection for all of us in the work that God has given us to do. Now, he comments on a phrase that that uh, Miss Batten Phelps used in her letter to him. You speak of, quote, a sanity and a sanctity in the Lord of the Rings, which is a power in itself. I was deeply moved. Nothing of the kind had ever been said to me before. But by a strange chance, just as I was beginning this letter, I had one from a man who classified himself as, quote, an unbeliever, or at best, a man of belatedly and dimly dawning religious feeling. But you, he said, create a world in which some sort of faith seems to be everywhere without a visible source, like light from an invisible lamp. Can only answer, of his own sanity, no man can surely judge. If sanctity inhabits his work, or as a pervading light illumines it, then it does not come from him but through him, grace. And then a lovely line for Miss Batten Phelps, and I think for any of us who love and enjoy the Lord of the Rings. So I'll repeat this to get the whole thing again. If sanctity inhabits his work, or as a pervading light illumines it, then it does not come from him but through him. And neither of you, that is Miss Batten Phelps, nor this man who wrote the letter, and I would say any one who has read and loved the Lord of the Rings and, and found this, this kind of sanity and sanctity and a power in itself. And neither of you would perceive it in these terms unless it was with you also. Which is a lovely con- concluding point for our reflections that when we read the Lord of the Rings in this way, just to enjoy it, but open to the deeper truth, which as Tolkien has said, and we've said abundantly in our reflections, he fully intended would underlie everything in the entire story of the Lord of the Rings. Not only could Tolkien not have written that, but neither could we as readers have delighted in it unless some kind of grace was working in us and through us as we did so. And that's why I think it's worth, Chris, doing what we've done in these conversations, just uh, delighting in and exploring some of the many aspects of the Lord of the Rings, because it does do that. It's so uplifting. We sense the work of grace that is there, which is... I think maybe the best and most beautiful final word that we can say about this wonderful work. You know, so often, as we've spoken about before, we just don't understand how to articulate what is going on inside of us, inside of our hearts. That experience of being taken into something, or maybe a better way of phrasing it would be that we're being taken up into something. Does that make sense? It's another one of the functions of these kinds of stories that Tolkien describes as recovery. And that is that through seeing things in a different setting, to use his own terms, in a secondary world, a subcreated world, when it's well done by the writer, opens our eyes to their presence in the real world, the primary world in which we live. And I think the Lord of the Rings does that. And and the deepest of all things is the final one on which we focused, and that is that redemption is the final world, the final word in this world in which we live, so that we live ultimately with hope. Father Gallagher, there is something important for us to try to reflect and ponder on when we think about the nature of joy, isn't there? I mean, isn't that what we've been discussing in a very real way? 
that there is a difference between joy and what we understand as happiness, that even in suffering, there is something that is nurturing, that's something that connects us to a grace that does elevate us to experience that particular nature of joy. Mm. I think that's uh, that's a, a great observation. In, uh, there comes a point, I think, when you read Tolkien's writings about eucatastrophe, that I think where joy and hope actually mingle and almost become one. We are joyful because of the hope that suddenly dawns in our hearts and awakens joy within us when we know that this is real. I, I, maybe the best way to approach what you've just raised in your broader question, Chris, would be to go back to something that Pope Paul VI said. It's a seldom quoted document today, but it's a thing of beauty. It was in 1975 and an apostolic letter entitled On Christian Joy, Gaudete in Domino. And at one point in that document, Paul VI describes three different levels of joy. The most basic is the material level. He says it would be cynical to speak of joy to a person who is without food, uh, without shelter, whose basic human material needs are not being met. So that's uh, the first most basic level that has to be addressed. And that there, he says, that's why we have the whole Christian effort to meet those needs the corporal works of mercy as we describe them. But that's not enough. Building upon that, on a deeper level, there is the whole range of what he calls natural joys, the created joys that that God has built into his creation and intends that we delight in. So things like friendship, some of these we described in going through the Lord of the Rings, things like friendship, family, working at a task and seeing that it's concluded well and it's gone well, the joy of nature, the uplifting joy of silence at time, the joy of purity, and so on, Christ-centered and chaste love between a man and a woman. There is such a wide range of natural joys that God has built into his creation and intends that we experience. And Paul VI says in his letter that our world doesn't know them enough, and it's Christianity's task to esteem them highly and to teach them to a world that needs to know more of them. But then finally, and this gets, I think, to what we're talking about explicitly when we speak of joy on this deepest level, even that, even if we had all of the, all our material needs were met and we had all of these natural joys, something would still be missing. Augustine would say there would still be a restlessness in our hearts until we experience what is properly spiritual joy. And spiritual joy, the Pope says, is experienced when the human heart possesses God, known by faith, not by vision in this world, but by faith, and loved with a power to love, which we call charity, which is given to us in baptism. Then, Augustine would say, then our hearts find their deepest rest. So that's the deepest kind of joy that we're speaking of here. Now, Tolkien is not doing theology in The Lord of the Rings, as we've said many times. He's simply writing a wonderful story that he wants to be consonant with Christian truth. But in terms of the applicability about which he speaks, we can certainly say that experiences of the deepest kind of joy that we're describing that is touched and awakened when we read in literature about eucatastrophe and then realize its truth in our world that the resurrection, not the death of Good Friday, but the resurrection of Easter Sunday is the final word, that kind of joy will be exquisitely spiritual joy. And that can be experienced 
in the midst of material privations and in the midst of things that can be very difficult in the world, illnesses and so on, the different things that you mentioned. That's the unshakable joy which never leaves us. I have to think that that is the reason why Mary is described by the angels as joy-filled, that even though a sword would pierce her heart, even standing at the foot of the cross, even that suffering would not rob her of joy. My spirit rejoices in God. It's exquisitely spiritual joy that Mary describes in the one time she speaks at length in the Magnificat. And it's, it's striking that the one time she speaks at length, it's just to delight in God's actions in his life and in the history of the people of Israel. It's an outpouring of joy. Yeah, that's exquisitely spiritual joy. Mary stands very much as a witness to that kind of joy in our world today. That is, to the nature of that joy, the truth of that joy, and the possibility of that joy as we live in this world. Well, we've come to the end of our journey on the reflections on the Lord of the Rings. Any final thoughts? I think the deepest of all invitations is to hear, again, Tolkien's intention in writing the book. He just wanted to make a a long and engaging story that readers would delight in. So that's always the first thing. If any of our reflections move any who have have uh, walked with us through these reflections to want to pick up The Hobbit or to want to pick up The Lord of the Rings and just delve again into that, uh, into the richness of that story, that'd be the best of all things. And if we do that, then we're going to find that some of these other things we've talked about, the the ways in which The Lord of the Rings is meant to be true to the deepest truth of our world and the many ways in which it can imply that sanity and sanctity that Miss Batten Phelps found as she read The Lord of the Rings and the power that's in it, we'll experience that. That lifts up our hearts. I, I don't know if I said this already at some point in our reflections, Chris, but I remember a woman telling me, very dedicated woman who works very much for the Lord and lives for the Lord, that when she gets discouraged as she watches what's happening around her in the world, she just goes back to The Lord of the Rings. It's perfect because in that setting, we witness the real truth of things. And we know that like Sam in the darkness of Mordor, when the the clouds break and high up above him, he sees the white star shining and knows that there is a beauty forever beyond the reach of any evil. And his heart is lifted and his anxieties cease and he simply allows himself to, to sleep together with Frodo. That's what happens. We catch that kind of glimpse. It's uplifting, it's strengthening. And I think we could say with uh, Tolkien in that last quotation that we just looked at, there's a grace in it. And may that grace be a blessing for us all. Thank you so much, Father Gallagher. Thank you, Chris. Chris. You've been listening to A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. 
But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher.